Hello, my friend, my warrior. This is Mary Mack of The Mary Mack Show, encouraging you to visit my website, www.marymack.info, and pick up your free ebook, 21 Things You Must Know About the Grieving Process. And I encourage you to subscribe and pass this on to anyone who may be in need of assistance. Now back to our episode. Welcome to The Mary Mack Show, where we will be talking about your feelings, experiences, and pain following the death of a loved one. My friends, my warriors, this is Mary Mack of The Mary Mack Show, and I'm so grateful to have invited Misty Graham with us, and she lives in Tennessee in Nashville with her partner, Michelle, and she's originally from Oregon, and she's graciously agreed to be with me today to talk about the death of her father. We're doing a series on grieving children right now, and I'm so grateful that she's with us. And to speak about her experience before, during, and after his death, and to give you more knowledge about how bereavement works and how life experiences change us and the demands that go with taking care of a mom who survived her husband. So I thank you so much, Misty, for being here. Thank Thank you for having me. And I wanted to thank you for taking the time tonight and just going in deep about your dad, what life was like growing up, that which you can remember. And also, I wanted to let our audience know that she was 19 when this happened, when her father died. And he first had a stroke, and then he had a massive heart attack, which she found him. So please tell us what those experiences were like with your dad growing up first. How was your growing up years that you remember? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, I had a very normal, (laughs) um, (laughs) you know, I have two older brothers and then myself. So three kids, mom stayed home back in those days and, you know, took care of the house, took care of the kids, didn't work, all that good stuff. And dad, of course, you know, went to work bell to bell every day. 
and, you know, supported our family to the best of his ability. And we had, like I said, a great childhood, never wanted for anything. And, you know, back in those days, it was all about playing outside. And, you know, we didn't have cell phones and computers and all that good stuff. So we learned to come in when mom called us by our name or the streetlights came on. So yeah, childhood was great. You know, we didn't see a lot of my dad just in terms of the fact that he did work 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day, Monday through Friday. And when he came home, it was just kind of like dinner was on the table. He unwound with the little, you know, little house on the prairie we used to watch and then pretty much showered and, and headed to bed. So there wasn't a lot of, I guess, interaction, if you will, as it relates to my dad. You know, on the weekends, of course, like to just relax and unwind and decompress. So again, he just really kind of enjoyed that time. And, you know, he interacted with us as much as he could. But I just think a lot of the burden and now being an adult and looking back on it, a lot of the burden of being the, you know, sole breadwinner and making sure that things were taken care of at his job and worried about his job all the time and having that level of stress took a toll on him. But again, you know, all of that aside, what I do remember, he was a great dad, you know, we had great birthdays and Christmases and Thanksgivings and family got together. And, you know, when he could, he would help with homework and, you know, things like that. So, like I said, you know, everything that I do remember about growing up is really positive. And and my mom was a great mom. She was a bluebird leader and, Boy Scout <laughs> and, you know, PTA president and all that good stuff too. So yeah, my parents were as involved as they could be considering the amount of responsibility that they had. Wow. That's great. And when you started to go off to college, how did that all come together? Yeah. So back up, Mary, just for a second. So when I was a sophomore in high school, my dad had gone to a business trip up in Washington state. Okay. And I was just, I was in class one day and all of a sudden I got a call to go to the principal's office. And sure enough, they walked me in and sat me down and the principal said, Hey, we just got a call from your mom and your dad had a stroke. He was at a business meeting lunch with some counterparts and some coworkers and literally had a stroke sitting there at the at the lunch table. So they rushed into the hospital and he was okay, you know, other than just some sort of mild temporary effects from the stroke, but obviously couldn't drive back home. And he was a good six hours away from Milwaukee where we grew up right outside of Portland. So my older brother, you know, immediately got excused out of school and he flew up. We got him a flight, you know, as quickly as we could. And he flew up and picked up my dad and then drove him and my dad back in my dad's company car. But by the time I got home from school, you know, I mean, you're scared to death. I didn't know what a stroke was. I just knew he, something happened and it was traumatic and he had gone to the hospital and now my brother's gone and they're coming back. And I just remember a lot of chaos and a lot of fear. Because again, I mean, I was only, what, 16 years old at that time. And, ah, okay. you know, my mom trying to do the best she could to hold it down for myself and my my next oldest brother. And, you know, it was just it was just a really scary, scary time. That's the best way I can describe it. And then he got home and, of course, you know, doctor's appointments and checkups and all that good stuff. And he was put on a diet and ended up losing a bunch of weight. He also did smoke, which wasn't the best thing in the world. But he lost a bunch of weight you know, during that time, but it just inherently that stroke inevitably is what caused ultimately him to have the fatal heart attack that he had when I was 19. Wow. And you mentioned that you were the one who found him when he fell. 
I was, yeah. So again, I mentioned I had two older brothers who were both out of the home at this point. They had both moved out. And I was going to junior college. I was playing basketball and I was still living at home. I'm 19, just a dumb kid out of high school, just playing ball and life is great and not a care in the world. And I remember the day like it was yesterday. I'd gotten home from a road trip from basketball and it was about four in the morning. So I was super tired when I got home and just crashed out, as you can imagine. And and I remember coming home. I remember taking a shower, going to bed. And then the next thing I remember was about noon, same day, the phone rings in my bedroom and pick it up and it's my mom. And she was at work at this point. My mom, once I hit that 16 year old age, my mom decided that she had raised the kids. She had, you know, (laughs) now it was time for her to go out and have some fun and earn some money and all of that. So my mom was working at this time and called and just said, Hey, you know, where's dad? Is he there? Like he was supposed to be here a few minutes ago to pick me up, to take me to lunch. And I said, well, no. And at this point, my dad had retired from his job. Okay. So now he's retired and mom is working. So go figure. And uh, (laughs) he was home now during the days. And I said, well, I don't hear him or see him. I'm, you know, dead tired. And I said, let me run out real quick and see if I can see him, see if his car is here, whatever the case might be. So sure enough, that's what I did. And walked out to the, you know, out into the living room and I looked out the front window and I saw that his car was in the driveway. So I knew he was there somewhere. I just didn't know where. And the way our home was set up when I was a kid is I had my bedroom, my parents, my brothers, and then we had one bathroom in our house. So imagine five people, one bathroom. Wow. Um, But it was an old school, you know, ranch style home. And so again, as I came out of my room, I had to pass the bathroom and then the rest of the house, you know, of course, over off the living room. So as I came back in to tell my mom that his car was there, but I didn't know where he was, I noticed at that point as I was coming back into the hallway to turn to go into my bedroom, that the bathroom light was on under the door. So, and I hadn't noticed this in my fury to jump out of bed and try to find him. Initially, I noticed it on the way back in. So I rattled the doorknob and I knocked on the door and I didn't hear anything, but the light was on and the door was locked. So I ran back into my room, got back on the phone with my mom. And I said, Hey, I think something is wrong. Dad's in the bathroom. I think the light is on and the door is locked, but he's not answering. So my mom instantly just, as you can imagine, freaks out. And she's like, Oh my gosh, hang up the phone, call 911. She said, I'm going to call your brother's And I'm going to have somebody come and get me and let's, you know, we got to figure out what's going on. So sure enough, I hung up the phone. I called 911. I said, hey, here's my name. Here's my address. I think my dad may have either fallen or hit his head or something, but I believe he's in our bathroom of our home. I can't get in and I need help. I I don't know what to do. So sure enough, get 911 rolling hang up the phone. And so in the meantime, I'm like, well, I can't just sit here. Like, you know, I've got to I've got to do something. So we had a, as I mentioned, an old school, you know, ranch style home, and you could pick the locks very easily, as my brothers loved to do when I was in the bathroom. <laughs> um, and so I, so I just grabbed a bobby pin out of our our pantry door in our in our hallway, and sure enough, I was able to to get the lock open with that bobby pin on the bathroom door. So I pushed it open, maybe about six inches, and then it came to an abrupt stop. And so I was like, okay, something clearly is wrong. But at that point, I didn't even, nothing was crossing my mind other than there, I think there's something wrong, but I had no idea what I was going to find. So sure enough, I 
is people talk about sort of that superhuman strength. I mean, I was 19. I was a, a, a skinny rail of a kid playing basketball. So I was working out all the time and I didn't, I wasn't super strong, but I had sort of that, that super strength people talk about. And I was able to push the door open enough to where I could get in and around to the bathroom side of the door. And sure enough, that's what I did. And as I came around the other side of the door, he was lying there and he had already started to not to get morbid, but he had already started to turn, turn color and that whole process had already started to begin and he was naked and his hair was still wet and he was lying on his side right next to the bathtub. So I didn't really react. I remember just being very calm. I think I was in shock, but I grabbed a towel that he had on the counter, of course, and put that over him. And then I just sat down next to him and just started talking to him. And I was like rubbing his hair and I'm like, it's okay. You know, help is coming and it's all right. And I just, but it was so odd because in that moment, it was just like time completely stopped. Like the entire world just stopped and it was just him and I, but it wasn't really even him anymore. And I think subconsciously I knew he was gone, but I, I don't think that consciously I could, I could grasp that. So I just, again, I just remember sitting there with him for what seemed like forever, but was probably just a few minutes. And then the next thing I knew, somebody reached in and it was one of the 911 folks. They reached in and kind of grabbed me by the back of my t-shirt and, you know, literally kind of pulled me out of the bathroom and into the living room. And at that point in time, my mom had also not only called one of my brothers to come and get her, but also called our next door neighbor who was a retired nurse And our next door neighbors were best friends with my parents and so knew each other very well. So Sue, my next door neighbor, was also in the living room at that time. And she kind of grabbed me and, you know, was hugging me and holding me as they're dragging my dad out of the bathroom and literally just laid him in the hallway. And I mean, all I can remember is at that point, just bawling and screaming and crying. And there's chaos everywhere, needles flying everywhere, Ivy, you know, two, I mean, all kinds of stuff. And then they just basically wheeled in a stretcher into the living room of our house, put my dad up on the stretcher, took him out to the ambulance. And then Sue and I literally in record time ran over to her house, jumped in her car and followed the ambulance to the hospital. Meanwhile, my brother, my oldest brother had gone and picked up my mom and brought her to the hospital as well, because Sue had also been able to communicate with my mom a little bit about what had been going on when the ambulance pulled up and so on and so forth. And so we knew to have my mom come to the hospital. And then my next oldest brother also was at the hospital. So we basically all kind of convened within, I'd say, 10, 15 minutes of the ambulance getting there. So we get we get shuffled into the waiting room. And it seemed like we were in there for an hour maybe longer. Wow. But then the next thing I remember is the doctor came in and he grabbed my mom by the hands and he said, Mrs. Graham, I'm going to need you to sit down. And then he basically just told us that my dad was gone. And he explained he had had a massive, what they call a widow maker heart attack, literally. Wow. And he told us that his heart attack was so massive that even if he would have been on an operating room table, they probably wouldn't have been able to save him. Oh my. So here we are, mom, two older brothers, myself, and Sue, our neighbor, hearing this news in the waiting room of the hospital. My mom 
I have never heard screams and cries like that in my entire life, not even like in movies or anything. Like I, I didn't think my mom had those types of emotions in her, mm-hmm. but in that moment, she literally, I mean, I think just her entire life was ripped away from her. Sure. And I believe that to be very, very true because in the years following my mom, literally, I always tell people that I believe the day that my dad died, a huge part of my mom died with him. Yes. Because after that day, she was never the same. She was very emotionally shut down. She was still very loving and and caring and motherly and, you know, grandma and all these things. But as far as like the mom we knew growing up versus the mom we knew the day my dad died, two completely different people. And she was never the same again. And she chose, I mean, my dad was her entire life. They were married for 25 years. Ironically, they had just spent their 25th wedding anniversary. We had a huge party for him in April of 1990. And then my dad died four months later in July. So needless to say, it was a huge, huge emotional torment, heartbreak, whatever you want to call it for my mom, because here we've got four months earlier, this grandiose celebration of them being together 25 years. And then four months later, he's gone forever. So I saw death and I saw loss and sorrow and sadness and every other emotion there is at a very young age. And I didn't really know how to cope with any of that. And as a matter of fact, back then, again, it's 1990, like we didn't talk about counseling. Nobody knew what therapy was like. No one suggested that nobody said, Hey, Misty, you know, found him and kind of went through this huge traumatic thing. You might want to get her in some counseling, like never even crossed anyone's mind, you know? And again, I'm only 19. So I can't raise my hand and say, Hey, I think I need to go to therapy. Like (laughs) who who did that back in those days? So, So to make a very long story, hopefully not longer, but after my dad died, like I said, my mom basically tapped out emotionally and was never the same again. And I found myself in a position of being this, you know, again, naive 19 year old kid, not a care in the world one day to the next day, becoming a full-time caretaker and literally substitute husband for my mom, because the amount of shock and stress and strain it caused her, she I think subconsciously forgot that she still had a 19 year old at home because she was unable to function, work, eat. I mean, let alone, you know, pay a bill or deal with any household issues or I mean, anything like that. So I literally stepped into my father's shoes at 19 years old and learned again at a very early age how to bury my own emotions and bury my own sadness and bury my own sorrow for the sake of being a caretaker to my mom at that point in time. Yes. So then fast forward three years later, I'm still at home, still living with mom. She had kind of started to come out of some things as it relates to getting a little more active again, engaging with household chores and, you know, paying bills and things like that. But still I was there to just make sure that everything was okay. And she had gone back to work at this point But I remember I was in the house one day and just like we do a million times in our lives, I bent down and I was brushing my teeth one night and just innocently brushing my teeth, nothing crazy, no health issues or anything going on. And I went to stand up to continue brushing my teeth. And I got that really 
sort of terrible feeling, that tunnel vision that you get and that sweaty feeling and that nausea when you're about to pass out. And I didn't realize what it was. I just didn't realize what it was. And it was just this innocent act of brushing my teeth. But what happened, Mary, is literally from that moment forward, that day, that night at the sink, brushing my teeth, I got massive, and I am talking massive anxiety and panic attacks for the next year and a half. Oh, my. And it all revolved around me thinking that I was going to die 24 hours a day. Wow. Because wow. it was caused by a physical symptom. And I've had a, you know, I've had a handful of moments in my life since then of that passing out feeling when you get, you know, overheated or whatever the case might be. And it hasn't ever bothered me since then. But just that, just that panic moment of what just happened. Oh my gosh, something triggered. There was a switch that went on in my brain and something, something triggered that, this feeling of passing out. And that caused me to start to have, like I said, massive anxiety and panic attacks for the next year and a half. Wow. So I'll fast forward through all of that. And I did finally then, on the advice of a a really good friend, I did end up seeking out a therapist because in those 18 months of having this panic and anxiety, and I lost like 50 pounds, I mean, it was awful. And I thought, I literally thought I was going to die. Like if I got a headache, I thought I had a brain tumor and I was going to die as ridiculous as that sounds. I had a panic attack so bad one time in the middle of Costco, Costco of all places, my favorite place on the planet Earth. (laughs) I I literally left an entire grocery cart of stuff in the middle of an aisle because I had to leave. I had to get out of car. I just I couldn't. I, I thought I was just going crazy. Okay. so finally, I sought out some counseling and I found a therapist and I went in. The very first appointment I had is usually sort of that, you know, get to know each other. Are we comfortable? Do we want to continue? So on and so forth. So had that first appointment, really liked the gal I was was talking to and went back and went ahead and made a second appointment. And the second time that I went in, I got it more and more into the story of what had actually happened, a lot more detail than I'm giving here and really expressed to her and really let go of, of all of that, of what had happened when I found my dad and the fact that I had gone through such a massive traumatic experience, but then literally the next day stuffed all of that down and never dealt with any of my own emotions and not only stuffed my own emotions down, but then took on all of the emotions of my mom. So what had happened and what I was finally diagnosed with, thank you, Lord, because I realized at that point that I wasn't crazy and that there are millions of other people that had what I was diagnosed with. But she ended up giving me a diagnosis of PTSD Mm -hmm. because of, again, you know, being a part of this traumatic experience and then never dealing with it, never talking about it, excuse me, never really crying about it except the day of his funeral and then instantly going into caretaker mode for my mom. I never gave myself a chance to process any of what I had gone through. Right. And so what happened is it just manifested itself physically. And it came out as this, you know, sort of this, woo, I'm going to pass out, which then triggered all of this anxiety and these panic attacks and this, you know, just this (laughs) very funny now, but not so funny then, but this funny fear of the fact that I was going to die 24 hours a day. So once I was diagnosed with PTSD, I finally then started to get better because I had a name for it. I could study it. I could learn. I could read about it. I believe knowledge is power. 
Yes. And once I was able to grasp that, okay, this is it. This is what's finally wrong. You're not going to go to the nut house. You're not going crazy <laughs> be on Xanax the rest of your life. Like, you know, this is, this is truly what's wrong with you. And this is why it happened. Once I could start to unravel that. And then obviously working with my counselor as well, I was able to really, I guess, overcome for lack of a better term, all of that trauma that I had experienced, not just in finding my dad, but then all of the trauma that I went through in instantly becoming a caretaker for my mom and dealing with all of, like I said, all of those emotions of my own of what happened to my mom and how she became this shell of a person, but then also dealing with all of her emotions about it. So it's really kind of crazy how our brain works and, you know, the things that we go through. But I'm happy to say that, you know, once I was diagnosed, it it took about six months to work through that. And as I've gotten older and become more of an adult and throughout my life, I've had other trauma and things that have happened. And so I believe that everybody could use a good therapist. So I believe very much in therapy and counseling and getting help and talking through any kind of situation that's traumatic. But for me, that was really the saving grace was was getting a, a diagnosis of PTSD and then continuing to work with a really, really good, understanding, empathetic counselor. That is, wow, that is so <laughs> powerful. No, I've known many people who have had to step into the caretaker role, mm-hmm. including my stepson, my oldest stepson, when his sister was killed mm-hmm. and his mother just collapsed similar to your mom. Mm -hmm. And it took years for him to even deal with, you know, it was like three years later. And Mm -hmm. that's when he started to manifest everything he didn't manifest similar to you. Yeah. And and he didn't get a chance to grieve, you know? So, Mm -hmm. so when he started acting out and he wasn't doing the laundry anymore, he wasn't cooking anymore. He wasn't paying Mm -hmm. bills. When he just decided I've had enough, Mm-hmm. Everybody wanted to know what was wrong with him. And there's right. nothing wrong with him right. because he he took care of everybody else when no one was taking care of him. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, exactly. And it's sad, but a lot of people go through that young mm-hmm. when one parent dies or a sibling dies, and you know you you know you have to pick up the slack and you're put in a position that's really difficult. Mm-hmm. No, you were put in a very difficult position, but you felt it was the right thing to do, mm-hmm. you know, at the time. And unfortunately, you paid for it psychologically mm-hmm. and even emotionally and physically. Mm-hmm. Came out physically. Yes. So I okay. applaud you. I mean, you were very <laughs> brave to have gone through such, you know, trauma back then. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's crazy, Mary. We talk about, you know, birth and birthdays and celebrations and milestones and all these different things, but we just don't like to talk about death. No, we we don't. don't. We don't like to talk about grieving. No, we don't like to talk about how to prepare or, you know, I mean, you can never truly prepare yourself for that, but if nothing else I've learned and I, I, want to give you a shout out for, you know, really addressing probably one of the toughest subjects in life for anyone to talk about, for anyone to think about, for anyone to deal with, because it's one of the most traumatic things that you can go through is losing someone, parent, sibling, spouse, friend, you know, someone who's close to you. And 
I commend you for, you know, being willing to have a safe space for people to talk about this because it happens to everyone. We're all going to lose someone. And, you know, I certainly wasn't ready (laughs) at all at 19 years old to lose, you know, the only true man that I had had in my life at that point, but things happen. And, you know, we either curl up and crawl in a hole and die. Or we say, well, you know what? That was not fun. I did not like that very much at all. I do not want to experience that again. But what can I do, you know, to take this experience and either pay it forward? And in my case, I talk to a lot of people. I'm a coach. So I talk to a lot of people about anxiety, dealing with stress how to manage stress, handle stress, how to deal sometimes with the loss of someone. And, you know, I think that there was just a reason and a purpose that I was put in that situation and it was to help other people. And I always have been a big fan of a mantra of why not me? Mm -hmm. And when I say that, you know, why not me? Why wasn't it my mom that found him? Why wasn't it my my brothers that found him? Why, Why me? And there just has to be a a reason that's bigger than me, just like what you're doing. There's a reason bigger than you. And if we can all just, you know, talk about what we've been through and talk about that loss and grieve the loss and, you know, really be able to feel like we're in a safe space to do that, I think we'd be all, you know, we'd all be a lot better off. So again, I commend you for, for giving this space to someone like me who, has told the story a million times through my life. It gets easier, but it never really gets better, if that makes sense. It's no, still a totally. very, you know, not very fun story to tell. Yeah. Um, but I'm hoping that again, you know, just like what I've tried to adopt, like I said, why not me in my life that, you know, that people may hear my story and realize that, you know, it's okay and, and you can get through it and it's scary and it's awful, whether you're young or old. I mean, I was, you know, the same age when my dad died at 48. My mom died when I was 48. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So there's some weird coincidences in my world too, but we can talk about that on another (laughs) another interview. But yeah, so uh, it's just, you know, we just try to adapt and adopt and, and do the best we can with what we're dealt. And, you know, some people, like I said, just aren't ever able to overcome, but I'm very thankful that I was and that I that I did. And then obviously the death of my mother as well kind of brought all that back up again. So I got to revisit all of that fun stuff, but it was probably a very good cathartic experience for me. So. Oh, wow. Well, she still was around with you for quite a number of years after your dad died. Mm-hmm. She was. Did she evolve? Did she move forward a little bit more? No, not really. She chose to never date again. She had zero interest in meeting anyone else. Like my dad was it for my mm-hmm. mom. Like, mm-hmm. That was it. He was her world. He was her sunrise and sunset, as they say. Yeah. Um, and so I think my mom, who wasn't a very expressive person, she wasn't overly communicative, even when we were kids. I think my mom just really buried a lot of her emotion as well. And she never went to counseling. Like I offered and and wanted to take her and she just didn't want to have any part of it. I think she just silently suffered oh, is yeah. what I really believe and just dealt with it, you know, the best way she knew how. I'm sure there was a lot of tears during the times that she was alone. Wow. That's difficult. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, when you said how she reacted in the hospital, you know, she probably never imagined that she wouldn't live her entire mm-hmm. life with your dad. 
yeah. you know, and to lose him so young, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you said that he was 48 when he passed away. I mean, right. that's really young. Mm-hmm. You and know? she was only 45. So, wow. Yeah. Very difficult. Misty, this has been wonderful. I appreciate so much how open and honest you've been about all the experiences you've had, especially the PTSD, how it affected you, you know, trying to take over, you know, the whole household, basically, Mm -hmm. you know, once your dad died and trying your best to stuff down all those emotions you had for all those years before it manifested in you. And I commend you for getting counseling and, you know, developing a plan of action, you know, so that you would be well and you'd have the care that you needed. You know, so many people don't do that. And I always say, if you don't deal with it, it comes back to bite you in the butt. (laughs) Oh boy, does it ever. Does it ever, you know, you can only run for so far or for so long, but Miss Gracious, will it come back and bite you? Yeah. And if it's not with another death, mm-hmm. then it comes out, you know, just like with your case comes out physically, you know, it, it revisits later in life. Sometimes it comes when there's a divorce or you you lose a job or you have another death. Mm -hmm. Something triggers it, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm so grateful that you're well and happy, (laughs) you know, took a while, right? Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and, and real quick, Mary, just last, last quick thought, but you know, if anyone out there who is listening and watching our conversation tonight you know, it's a very difficult thing to deal with. Again, the loss of someone, especially a parent or someone that you're very, very close to. But I just want to advocate for the fact that as hard as it was and as hard as it's been, it's a lifelong process. You know, like I'll just wake up one day and I'll be super sad and I'll cry because I miss my dad, you know? Yes. Um, But it is, it's a lifelong process, but you can overcome, you can persevere. And you can get through it without the help of drugs, alcohol, yes, any other sort of detrimental activity, uh-huh. <laughs> a better term. And uh-huh. I just want to really advocate for that because a lot of people I know who have tragedies and suffer similar fates in similar situations, you know, turn to a bottle or drugs or something to numb it all, you know, just yes. to numb it all. But eventually that numbness wears off, just like we're talking about. And I just want to really advocate that it's a, it is, it's a very ugly, hard, difficult process to dig in and go through all of it and process the emotion and get out the sadness and cry till you don't think you can cry anymore. And then you cry some more. But I'm very thankful that I did it in a way that benefited me later in life. And Mm -hmm. I didn't, because it would have been very easy to just numb myself with Xanax. I got... I got prescribed Xanax for my doctor. Here, just take Xanax. Okay, because that's going to help. Yes. It might make me feel good for a minute, but then like, what about an hour from now or tomorrow or, you know? So again, I just want to leave maybe the audience with that, that, you know, it's very difficult. Trust me when I say I know how difficult it can be to grieve and to be sad and to have that 
a literal feeling of your heart getting ripped out of your chest, but there's help, there's people, there's friends, there's family, there's me, there's you, you know, like that's why I coach people too, because if somebody comes to me and they're suffering or they're sad or they're grieving or whatever the case might be, anxiety, and that's why I want to be able to help people because you don't need to turn that direction to deal with something like this, you know, something that's so tragic. I completely agree with you. And I'm glad you brought that up because too many people do rely on either prescription drugs mm-hmm. or non-prescription drugs, illegal right. drugs. Right. And especially now with so much fentanyl being thrown into mm-hmm. other drugs, mm-hmm. you know, laced marijuana, mm-hmm. you know, pills that look like candy. I mean, fentanyl scourge on our country and really all over the world. Mm -hmm. And it's so easy to literally lose your life over such a simple thing. You know, Mm -hmm. you just don't realize how deadly these drugs are. Then if you move into alcohol, alcoholism is something that once you get so deep down that road, very hard to come Mm -hmm. back from it you know, and then it becomes a lifelong process. Mm -hmm. Then you can't just be free to take a drink if you go out. Now it's a big to-do. And then prescription drugs. Oh Mm -hmm. my goodness. I mean, you've got, like you said, Xanax and Mm -hmm. all the antidepressants. And Mm -hmm. so you walk around in this fog all the time and you never really know if you're feeling your feelings. Right, right. And Mm -hmm. doctors so easily give out to antidepressants. And I think to myself, you know, with the way the world is right now and so much of those drugs coming from overseas, Mm -hmm. what if they stopped sending them to us? I Mm -hmm. mean, people would be in such a bad way. Yeah. (laughs) It'd be a lot of withdrawal, you know. So. I'm really glad you brought that up. We haven't spoken enough about that. And I think, you know, people who are dealing with grief, dealing with bereavement, Mm -hmm. it is not easy to go through that. It Mm -hmm. is absolutely not easy to go through that. But if you sidestep it, if you sidestep it, you compound the problem with another problem or maybe two more problems, Mm -hmm. you know? Yes. And then people can't rely on you any longer. Mm -hmm. You know, I realize you want to just zone out, you know, Mm -hmm. and unfortunately there are people who want to check out Mm -hmm. and they do. Yeah. Yeah. Suicide is a big thing among people who are bereaved Mm -hmm. and it's really terrifying how many young people are doing that because they can't deal with life. Right. And so our greatest help to young people is to make sure that they are mentally and physically able to handle such pain. And not everybody can do that, right? Not everybody can do that. And, and And it just compounds the problem because if you have someone, a young person especially, and they take their life now, the person who's grieving not only has to deal with the loss of the initial person, but now she or he has to deal with the second person. Right. You know, which Mm -hmm. isn't fair. Mm -hmm. Um, Really isn't fair, you know? Mm -hmm. So now they're completely overwhelmed. How do they go on with maybe losing a child as well as an adult? Right. So I'm glad, I'm really glad you brought that up. I encourage everyone listening to 
get help for themselves like you did. Get help when you need it, where you need it, because you're showing the other people in your life how to handle such tragedy, you know, and they may never have done this before. Mm -hmm. They may never have seen anybody grieving. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's an intense situation, but if we don't teach them Mm -hmm. how to grieve, well, Mm -hmm. we could have a lot more problems down the road. Yeah, for sure. Well, and again, you know, just a second last quick thought, but, um, you know, the world is so much different today than it was back in 1990 or even earlier, you know. Oh, without a doubt. You know, people's circumstances. But, you know, today we have, you know, suicide hotline. We have counselors. We have therapists. We have people like you who are doing podcasts and amazing things, you know, writing books. And, you know, like my mom went through hospice care in her end of life. And thank goodness for the counselors in hospice and the social worker we had. And I mean, there's just, there's just so much out there now, you know, again, there's books and resources and people and coaches and, you know, just (laughs) kinds of online research. I mean, the world is completely different than it was back then. And so I highly encourage just like I was able to, once I got my diagnosis for PTSD, I got, you know, I got some books and I read and I educated myself and I understood what was happening to me. And I understood what I was going through finally. And I also realized that it wasn't just me. It's not just you, you know, millions of people around the world every day lose someone close to them, but we feel so isolated and we feel so alone, especially if it is a spouse. And so, you know, I, again, I just really encourage people to, to get help, talk to someone, turn to any other alternative besides drugs or alcohol or something worse, because there is help out there. And there are people who have walked, you know, have walked in those shoes and certainly can have the empathy and the understanding to get where you're coming from and, and to, you know, help you through your situation, just like I had help through mine. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us tonight. Sure. I'm so grateful. I mean, you have such wonderful words of wisdom for all who are watching this right now and listening to this. And I thank you so much again, Misty. Have a wonderful evening, and I look forward to talking to you again. Same here. Thank you so much, Mary. I appreciate it. Bye now. 